This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hello and welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. As an American parent navigating a stubbornly sexist culture, Bonnie J. Ruff was stumped. How could she teach her kids the facts of life with joy and affirmation? Then a job change sent her family temporarily to Amsterdam, where she witnessed the relaxed and egalitarian Dutch approach to sexuality. There, children learned from babyhood that bodies are normal. The world's best sex ed begins in kindergarten. Puberty is no big surprise, and questions about sex are actually welcome at the dinner table. In this part of today's show, we're going to be speaking with Bonnie J. Ruff about her book, Beyond Birds and Bees. And in it, she reveals how, although normalizing sexuality may sound risky, doing so actually leads to better health and success for our children and lays the foundation for gender equality. For example, compared with the U.S., Holland boasts lower rates of teen pregnancy and sexually transmitted infections. And while Dutch and American teenagers begin having sex at roughly the same age, Dutch teens report more positive experiences and fewer partners. Dutch adults report greater respect and cooperation among genders when compared to American survey results. Today's show is brought to you thanks to Navy Federal Credit Union, which is proud to serve the Armed Forces veterans and their families. And if you're a member of the Armed Forces or the Department of Defense, they would be proud to serve you, too. Federally insured by NCUA. We'll start talking about how to bring home a new message to kids about sex, love, and equality when Positive Parenting continues right after this. Did you know when you donate a kidney, you give the gift of life? I had no idea you could donate an organ while you were still alive. If I'm born with two healthy kidneys but only need one, and I could really improve somebody else's life, why not? When I think of giving up something I don't need in exchange for a life, it's no contest. If I had another one, I'd do it again. Visit the National Kidney Foundation at kidney.org. Now you know. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Bonnie J. Ruff, who's the author of Beyond Birds and Bees, Bringing Home a New Message to Our Kids About Sex, Love, and Equality. Bonnie, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. What is the old message? And then let's talk about the new message. Love it. Great question. So I would say a lot of Americans can identify with sort of an old-fashioned approach to the birds and the bees that looks something like a one-time, you know, awkward sit-down at the end of the bed with mom or dad and a book and um, sort of a, a short, uncomfortable conversation about uh, about bodies and reproduction and maybe, if we're lucky, a little bit about relationships and love. Um, but I think one one real hallmark of the old way is to think of teaching young people about sexuality as as a talk instead of a conversation that we're having with our kids in some way or another from the time that they're babies. So um, to me, that gets right into what the new way can look like. Okay, so 
what is the new way then? Like it's it's clearly going to be not just one conversation. How do you begin to to have a, a new conversation with people who grew up with the old way and don't know what the new things are? Yeah, I mean, the thing is, all we want to do now as parents and educators is help make what has traditionally in its best form been a biologically correct, um, you know, accurate, but maybe limited scope kind of conversation, yet bigger to have a broader definition of what sex and human sexuality is all about. This is not just about our bodies. It never has been. But now we know a lot of new ways that we can talk about that. So it's not just, um, you know, how babies can get made, but also uh, what love feels like and how to, um, how to be kind and be a good friend, what respect for another person's boundaries are like, how to know what your own boundaries are, decision-making, consent, and um, yeah, just kind of what a healthy relationship looks like. All of those things play into healthy sexuality not just for better sexual health, um, you know, to avoid uh, unwanted pregnancy or sexually transmitted infections, but also to help us reduce the incidence of sexual violence and harassment. I think the new message is one where we're bringing in a sense of um, unity between the genders, uh, or among the genders, I should say, so that we're, we're all working toward the same things, which is freedom, safety, and, you know, health and comfort and pleasure and love for everybody, no matter what their, their gender is or, or who they are. And when do you start with these conversations? Great question. So, um, well, just to back up a little bit, let me tell you a little bit about where, where I came to this understanding from, because I'm that mom who was going to, you know, wait until my kid asked something and, then I was going to try to blurt out something helpful and, and change the subject as fast as I can because that's what's comfortable and that's what's typical. And, and also, you know, I didn't have any sense of why a young child, say a preschooler, should, should hear about reproduction or, or how babies get made or how they can come into the world. So, so I had a big learning experience. Uh, when I was um, a new mom of a daughter who was just not even quite two, my husband and daughter and I moved from the United States to Amsterdam. So we went to live in the Netherlands. And as new parents, you know how it is. You're kind of looking around for cues all around you about, you know, what are the other moms and dads doing? How are the nannies handling nap time? How are, you know, what are we going to be doing at the park? Are we hovering? Are we socializing? Are we? So um, I was completely in the thick of that mode when we moved to Amsterdam. And it was just going to be a temporary stay, maybe, you know, a couple of years. And so, um, but, the, but my milieu completely changed. Excuse me. So now I'm looking around at Dutch parents and Dutch families at the park and seeing, you know, okay, a few things, you know, in the everyday. Yeah, they're not hovering as much as we did at home. And uh, look like they're actually having more fun at the park, chatting with their friends and even having a glass of wine sometimes. So, that was fun. Um, but I also had saw some other things that really stood out to me and seemed a little, really a little strange and inexplicable. I was seeing this kind of general cultural comfort with nudity. Parents would let their kids swim without their clothes on at the public wading pool in the middle of the big city park. Hmm. That really surprised me at first. Um, and, and otherwise, just, you know, our locker room at our neighborhood pool was, was all genders. Um, so 
imagine getting used to that. I mean, there are certainly, you know, private changing stalls if you wanted them. But, yeah. yeah. That was so just for the kids a, or the, the adults as well? Adults as well. Yeah. Hmm. And then those same adults were using correct anatomical terms with their kids when they're changing by the pool. Or um, my daughter's preschool teachers would really make an emphasis to use correct anatomical terms, not to, um, you know, not to make a fuss about it, but if they're helping kids with potty training or, um, who, you know, need to change their clothes or who have a complaint of some kind, there was just this real straightforward, um, yeah, dealing with, with the having of human bodies that, that really stood out to me. Um, and, and then I started to hear, my daughter wasn't old enough for this yet, but that Sex ed in Dutch schools actually starts in kindergarten. And I thought, how can that be? And what could that possibly look like? Yeah. And then imagine this. I thought, this definitely can't be true. But I was also hearing that Dutch parents commonly know before their children um, make decisions to become sexually active and actually have a part in in sort of supporting their decision-making and keeping those lines of communication open so that their kids can make the best possible decisions and, and in the case that their children are becoming sexually active, they're way more likely than American parents to actually consider letting their teenager have their boyfriend or girlfriend sleep over at home. And I thought, okay, what I know about Dutch people is they're really practical folks. Um, hmm. I couldn't figure out what would be the reason to do something like that. But then all at the same time, I was noticing something different about myself in the Netherlands. Something was going on where I felt more comfortable in my skin and my body as a woman than I had ever felt in my adult life. So I kind of carried that feeling back home with me and landed back in the U.S. and had my second daughter and looked around and realized that feeling was slipping away from me really quickly. There was something about my that just sort of general you know, acceptance that I felt mm-hmm. as a woman and just just that almost being so at home in my own skin, like like the way a lot of kids, a lot of people can remember feeling as a kid, where you're just free to be. And so I realized as I had my second daughter and looked around it, kind of what we more typically do in American culture with boys and girls kind of setting them on slightly different paths from the very beginning by offering them different toys and clothes and sports and subjects and seeing kind of the beginnings, the roots of what I thought might, you know, lead lead to some greater separation later in life. And then at the same time, we, we were, we felt suddenly less comfortable in our community, in our neighborhood, talking about bodies. Um, if we needed to, you know, change our child or, or, you know, if we were changing and didn't shut the bedroom window for, or the bedroom blinds first, um, hmm. all of those things felt different. And I realized I want that feeling back that I felt living among my Dutch neighbors, and I want it for my kids. And I thought, well, any kid should have this feeling. All of us should have that feeling. So what I found out was that what I was feeling was how it is to live in one of the world's most gender-equal countries. And I realized, so, okay, what I'm seeing over there, those, you know, beginnings of the way parents teach their kids to be, you know, to freely explore their bodies. Um, there isn't such a huge emphasis on, as I mentioned, privacy. Um, yeah. All, yeah. Yeah. All of those things were, were the beginnings, the roots of what was actually becoming 
one of the most gender equal countries in the world. I thought, gosh, here we're looking around at me too. And, you know, all of us are thinking, how are we going to do different with our kids and give them opportunities to build gender equality in their generation? And there it was right in front of me. High well, quality do you think that that's, do you think that's possible here? Or do we have just too much weight heading the other direction? Well, if what you mean is do I think it's possible for for parents to kind of um, adopt maybe more open ways, one of the things that I've noticed in my research, because what I did was as soon as I, I had kind of had that insight like, oh, okay, this is about gender equality, and this is about building it from the very beginning of our children's lives, I went back and spent a lot of time doing research in the Netherlands, research back home in the U.S. in order to piece together not just kind of the what, but how. How does this look in households and in schools? And what I found out here, especially in the U.S., is that there are actually a lot of parents who are already doing things, you know, the quote-unquote Dutch way. They're um, normalizing nudity in their homes. They're... Uh, encouraging their children to be comfortable in their own bodies and to know how it works and to be welcome to feel pleasure and not ashamed of certain body parts more so than others, for example. So, Bonnie, we've got, we've got to stop you there for just a second. We've got to take a quick break here. I'm talking with Bonnie J. Ruff, who's the author of Beyond Birds and Bees, Bringing Home a New Message to Our Kids About Love, Sex, I'm sorry, I'll do that again, About Sex, Love, and Equality. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Bonnie. I don't recycle. I mean, we can just find another planet for your kids to live on, you know? Noted non-recycler Tommy Crenshaw talks about the future. Oh, I can totally see finding another planet that can support life when ours fills up with trash. Log on to yougottobekidding.org and learn about all the ways you can recycle, unless you're into lame excuses like Tommy's. Hey, recycling's just not my thing. Starting over on a new planet? Now that's exciting. Don't be that guy, unless you want people looking at you funny. Log on to yougottobekidding.org. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just joining us, talking with Bonnie J. Ruff, who's the author of Beyond Birds and Bees, bringing home a new message to our kids about sex, love, and equality. Um, you were just talking about uh, how we how we can do this here, or whether we can do this here in the United States. Yeah. So I think what I hear from, from parents, and I noticed this just right from the time I became a mom, my kids are 7 and 11 now, is that parents all around me, are saying, I want to do some, I want to address sexuality differently and more effectively than maybe it was addressed for me. I want to be open and honest with my kids. And then I do this all the time. And I definitely, definitely do not want to instill shame. I do not want to shame them about living in their human bodies. And so I think the, the will is there. And as I mentioned, there are a lot of families who are kind of going, well, we're just going to make nudity normal. We're going to we're going to draw that same line, the same line, line that I saw Dutch families drawing every day between non-sexual, everyday human body kind of nudity and erotic nudity because they're not the same thing. And we want to kind of bring back the difference between those. So I see families doing that, but I think what's different is the possibility of opening up a new conversation where we all kind of recognize that we have peers out there who are approaching things that way or or. Then there's another, I think, a whole other group of parents who are a lot like the way I felt in in the beginning of my journey, which is, you know, this kind of 
I mean, we love our kids. We want them to be safe. We want them to be protected. We want them to be happy and loved. But, I mean, that's the same across the board. And so another approach to that is going, well, I'm afraid that talking to my children about sexuality could damage them, could harm them. What if I say too much? What if, what if something I tell them makes them try something that they wouldn't have otherwise done um, and, and something unsafe, for example? Well, that was a huge relief for me because those are things that were holding me back from mm-hmm. just talking freely with my kids about bodies and life and talking about song lyrics or what's on the news as we're driving home from school and, and realizing that, first of all, experts told me again and again that that fear about saying too much, we don't need to hold on to that. Because the thing, we all know this about kids, right? If you tell them something that they're not ready to absorb, whoops, it goes in one ear and out the other. Right. And, and so as long as you have the right intentions, you, you can say what you like. And, and then, too, if you know that you're working on it, you're coming back to it again and again, it gets more comfortable for you as a parent, and you get opportunities to revisit your message. So, um, so that's the thing. I think for some people, they, they can get the message, you know, now that the way they've been doing things, the way they've wanted to do things, and maybe wondered if they're okay. I, I mean, can I tell my friends? Or we're making around our kids. You know, yes, you can. Yeah. And I think the more that we share those experiences and make them common, the more luck we're going to have getting human bodies normalized and, you know, ideas about everything from, you know, rejecting gender role stereotypes and, yeah, just aiming for better relationships. Well, I want to get back a little bit to the age thing because I think I have a a 15-year-old who last year in her freshman year of high school had a a class where they talked a lot. Of, it was called social issues, and they they had conversations along the lines, probably, of what you're talking about, where they were talking about different, not just binary ways of looking at gender, but the polyamorous and relationships and and things like that. Um, and it was it was interesting. It was a little bit of an eye opener for me. I thought it was a bit much, but that was just my my take on it, just out of out of nowhere anyway. But. Then there was a thing that I, I saw in my news feed the other day about a nine-year-old kid, nine-year-old boy, who committed suicide because he was bullied after coming out to his friends as gay. And I was thinking to myself, I, nine years old seems so young for a child to be making a decision or to know. I, I, I mean, you know, to, I, you can't always make decisions based on your own experience, but they're like at nine years old, there's no way in the world that I had a sense one way or the other, I don't think. And I think most people don't, but it just, it, it, I was wondering whether having too many discussions about too many possibilities is confusing to people. Oh, I see be. what you're saying. I, I think it's probably safe to say that for a lot of people there, there is a lot of clarity and certainty about, about gender and orientation from from maybe a younger age, I think if you're you're swimming in the mainstream, maybe you don't feel your your identity as as um, as sharply as you might if you felt like you were maybe not swimming in the mainstream. So I think I think we probably need to make sure that we validate the the possibility that people can know things about themselves. But at the same time, I think the real issue is, you know, whether or not. Um, 
a particular nine-year-old is is correct about their gender orientation or their sexual orientation, which again I think is entirely possible. Um, right. What you have is what you have is a situation where homophobia caused a child to lose their life. So one thing that right. I learned was going back, looking at the nether, at the Dutch um, school-based sex ed, which is something that um, they do better than anyone in the world. They have an incredible, just world-class, comprehensive sexuality education program that begins in kindergarten and, and carries through. Um, but what, what the education minister, because of course they have more federal, federal control over what schools must offer, um, it's, it's flexible, but they have specific goals that schools need to adhere to. And aside from teaching children um, you know, t- how to take care of their bodies, kind of basic health, and um, and also uh, emotional health and social emotional skills such as being able to know your boundaries and feeling assertive in, in guarding those, they also have written in the express goal of preventing homophobia. They want to reduce homophobia. So a huge important piece of comprehensive sexuality education is teaching children that other bodies, other people, other kinds of love are not yours to judge and police. That someone else's, someone else's, that your freedom ends where someone else's rights begin. And so that is how you get to a more gender equal society in the end. They're not just talking about like, you know, you know, what it means to get your period. They're going into what it means to have an inclusive, tolerant, and um, a society that, that accepts that love is for anyone. Is that any different, though, than saying that different political views are acceptable and should be welcomed and encouraged and discussed and and analyzed? Well, yeah, um, as far as freedom of speech, I mean, certainly, but I, I'm not sure. I well, no, I mean, the, the, the attitude, the attitude that, that uh, people should be able to make whatever decisions they want about their own bodies and what they're going to do with them— um, it just seems, you know, is that a, a part of a larger discussion about general open-mindedness and tolerance and acceptance of, of views that are not yours? Absolutely. I mean, just imagine um, how how a society can can be uh, a safer, more um, creative and free place if all of us had a little kind of more live and let live um, and, and imparted more of that to, to our kids, which I think today's parents are really looking hard at and, and wanting to do. So in, in a minute, that's about all we've got left here, is, what, what do you think is going to be the result if we're able to have a more Dutch way of looking at the world having to do with, with sex and relationships and love and equality? Well, this goes back to your, your good question about how much body autonomy does a, a person have the right to have and have recognized in a society. Think about the foundations of Me Too and where, where those kind of disparate, disparate power structures led us to. Now think about a generation of children being raised to think, well, bodies are normal. My puberty is this way. Her puberty is that way. And we're used to it because we talk about it. It's all out in the open. We're friends throughout middle childhood, so we're not mysteries to each other when we meet again in adolescence. Again, so that was a fun thing, cooties being uh, a foreign concept. Um, but 
So think of kids coming up that way. And then the problem of kind of the confusion about whether a girl, for example, or a woman has the right to resist someone who is, is lording over her in some way or, or pressuring her or, or hurting her. Um, I think we teach a lot of confusing messages, especially to girls, but also to boys about how much they have the right to push another person's boundaries and comfort zone. So I think that's where we can go next with higher quality sex ed. Bonnie J. Ruff is the author of Beyond Birds and Bees, bringing home a new message to our kids about sex, love, and equality. Bonnie, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. My name is Ruth Rusi, and this is how I live United. I read to children as part of United Way's education program. It helps them create links between language and literacy and prepares them for a better academic future. I figure I have the time and they have the need. My name is Ruth Rusi. I help kids prepare to succeed in school. So I don't just wear the shirt, I live it. Give, advocate, volunteer, live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and it's time for an Ask Mr. Dad segment. Dear Mr. Dad, my wife and I just found out she's pregnant. I thought the pregnancy was going to bring us together, but we've been arguing a lot lately. Either that or silence. Is this normal? Either way, what can we do to get back on track? Pregnancy is a time of great joy and anticipation and of great stress. And even though you and your partner are both expecting at the same time, you're not experiencing the pregnancy the same way or at the same pace. This can lead to a lot of misunderstandings and conflicts. Adding a baby to a family is like looking at the family through a magnifying glass. Everything that's good about your relationship gets better, and everything that's bad gets worse. As the pregnancy continues, then, it's critical to learn to talk and to listen to each other and to find ways to help each other through this marvelous but emotionally bumpy experience. As men, we instinctively want to protect our partners from harm. And when they're pregnant, protecting them may include trying to minimize the levels of stress in their lives. One way men do this is by not talking about their own concerns. Sometimes it's because we worry that mentioning our own fears may cause our partners stress. Other times, it's because we don't want to expose how vulnerable we are at a time when we're supposed to be strong and supportive. There are two big problems with this kind of thinking. First, by not giving yourself a chance to talk about your concerns, you'll never learn that what you're going through is normal and healthy. Second, your partner will never get the chance to find out that you understand and share her feelings. On the other hand, Men who talk about their feelings and get their partner's emotional support during pregnancy have better physical and emotional health and are better able to maintain good relationships with their partner than men who don't get that kind of support. So talk with your partner about everything, your excitement, your dreams, and even your fears, worries, and ambivalence. And don't forget to ask your partner what she's feeling about the same things. Have these discussions regularly. What you and your partner are thinking and feeling now may be completely different from what you'll be thinking and feeling in two or three or six months. Here are some conversation starters to think about. Your involvement in the pregnancy. Are you going to stay on the sidelines and be a bystander? Are you emotionally involved in the pregnancy and do you see yourself as a full partner? 
are you going to micromanage the whole thing, planning every medical appointment, every meal, and every trip to the gym? Whatever you decide to do, make sure to talk it over with your partner. After all, she's pregnant too. Your involvement in family tasks. How much childcare are you planning to do when the baby comes? How much is your partner expecting you to do? How much are you expecting her to do? Religion. Both you and your partner may never have given a thought to the religious education, if any, you plan to give your child. If you have thought about it, make sure you're both still thinking along the same lines. Discipline styles. How do you feel about spanking your children? Never? Sometimes? And how does she feel about it? How you were raised and whether your parents spanked you will have a great deal to do with how you raise your own children. Work and childcare expectations. Is your partner planning to take some time off after the birth before going back to work? How long? Would you like to be able to take some time off? How long? What types of childcare arrangements do you and she envision? Finally, finances. Do you need two paychecks to pay the mortgage? If you can get by on one, whose will it be? If you've got a question or comment here for us at Positive Parenting, please do send it over. You can drop us a line through our website, mrdad.com. We'll be back next week with another brand new show for you. But don't go quite yet because there's a lot more of this Positive Parenting show coming right up. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. Excuse me, do you know how to get to Maine and Maple? Do you have these in a seven and a half? How's that cooked? Can I get that shipped overnight? Is there a direct flight? How long does the warranty last? What's your soup of the day? How do you change the ringtone? Does it come in blue? Does this bus stop at Elm Street? We ask questions everywhere in life. Is it raining out? Uh, what time's the meeting? How much does this cost? Does it have four-wheel drive? Have we met before? What's my account balance? Yet somehow, when we get to the doctor's office... Any questions? Um, no. We clam up. Ask questions. What is this test for? Are there any side effects? When do I get my results? Questions lead to better health care. Go to AHRQ.gov for a list of 10 questions everyone should know. Questions are the answer. Public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey there, welcome back to Positive Parenting. This is the second half of the show. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of Mr. Dad. Glad you stayed with us. Parent-teenager relationships are often stressful and precarious, especially if the teen is acting out, lying or engaging in other damaging behaviors. But these relationships, and particularly the conflict within them, offer opportunities for both the parent and the teen to grow. In this part of today's show, we're going to be speaking with a clinical psychologist who has a new theory of teenagers. She now invites parents to look within themselves to mend strained relationships with their kids. She explains how oftentimes a parent's own past trauma can color their concerns. She also offers a lot of exercises for parents to develop a better understanding of their teens and themselves, and we're going to talk about a lot of those things throughout our discussion today. 
The bottom line is that parents have a greater impact on conflict with their teen than they realize. We have a tendency to think that it's the teen who needs to be changed rather than ourselves. Once we realize this, that we have the greater impact, that's kind of like metaphorically handing ourselves back the power to create harmony where there was once chaos. I'm Armin Braun. We'll start talking about this new theory of teenagers along with some transformational strategies we can use on ourselves to empower us and our teens when Positive Parenting continues right after this. Did you just look down at your phone? You did it again, didn't you? You know, you're flying down the road in a three-ton hunk of steel and a text takes your eyes off the road for an average of five seconds. At 55 miles per hour, that's long enough to travel the length of a football field and cause some serious damage. Turn it off. Trust me, whatever it is, you'll live. Learn more at StopTextStopRex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Braun, and my guest for this part of today's show is Krista Santangelo, who is the author of A New Theory of Teenagers, Seven Transformational Strategies to Empower You and Your Teen. Krista, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about what the old theory of teenagers is first before we get to the new one. How So we need to figure out where we are starting from. Yes, it's a good question. I think the new theory in the book um, is really turning the lens away from the teen, not that we don't, of course, think about the teen and try to understand where the teen's coming from. But what I found over 25 years of practice was that the struggles were so intense and that just working with the teenager wasn't as successful as actually tapping deeply into the parent's psyches and the parent's mind and thought and really working from that angle. So the newness of the approach is really understanding parents' triggers and how they intersect with teenagers so that we can unwind those dilemmas. Does that mean that teens aren't flawed? That's another great question. <laughs> so teens, alas, are flawed, as we all are. And what I've found is that I like to work with the most motivated party. And in my many years, parents were so extremely motivated to untangle these dilemmas and get relief. And teenagers were less motivated. They were more motivated to have fun, be with their friends and live their lives, which is appropriate. So I always find working with the most power, the most motivated party, which were the parents, um, gives me the most power, gives us the most power to transform. So right. that's why I focus on the parents. And I also work with teenagers, and they clearly can also benefit from taking a look at themselves. But that's not exactly the focus of this book. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm curious about how this all goes together because you, you, there are two things that pop to mind, two sort of cliches. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't help somebody who doesn't want to be helped, so mm-hmm. you're going to clearly go with the person who's most motivated to change. At the same time, you can't force change on somebody who doesn't recognize that they need any change. Mm-hmm. And so the parent who is motivated to do something, it's going to involve often not just completely changing your point of view, but trying to do something that you're, to motivate a change of heart or a change of behavior in the child, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's, that's a really good point. I think 
you know, what I, what I found was that parents were so frustrated in not being able to change their teenagers, whether it was smoking pot, school problems, power struggles. And what we know about um, change, especially in the teen years, is that the leverage is really a different point, meaning we have to have a connection with our teenager in order to hope for any change. It's not like when they're five, we put them in a timeout. When they're 11, we take away their phone. As they mature, what we really rely on is the connection. So in changing one part of the relationship, which is the parent, that connection changes. And that connection is where the power is. And for example, if I'm looking at myself as a mom and I'm realizing that when you're lying to me about where you were, I'm having a very extreme reaction that's both rigid and exaggerated. If I can bring that down a notch, I can actually have a conversation that's rational with you to get somewhere versus just going into a power struggle. So does that answer the question? It does. It does. And, and I'm wondering, we'll have to get into this in more detail, but this is, you know, <laughs> it's becoming what sometimes I, I, I interview a lot of people and there's, whenever there's something to do with kids my age, this always becomes a therapy session for me. So, Perfect. And I've got a 15 year old and, and she and I were just talking about some of the differences between her mother and, and me. We're, we're divorced and the family that I grew up in, we argue a lot. We talk a lot. People are yelling all the time. But at the end of the evening, everybody hugs and, and we're friends. In her mother's family, you don't argue. You don't talk. Her, her grandparents, the, the mother's parents, are absolutely rigid. And there is no discussion and there's no pushback and there's none of that stuff. And so for my daughter to be going back and forth, and even when we were together, in you know, to be dealing with me where I'm encouraging discussion and pushback up to a point. There's, you know, health and safety issues. We, we draw the line. But it, it, it's confusing for her sometimes. And she wants consistency. She wants, she wants to know where she stands all the time. And it's, it's different. Mm-hmm. But, so, but, but there, there's, there's the issue, I think, is that I think I'm a little bit more aware of the differences than her mother is. Her mother, I think, is is perhaps stuck a little bit more on automatic and may not be in, in the way that you just were suggesting, being able to look and say, oh, I'm doing, I'm going through this or I'm thinking that. It's just boom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, the Dalai Lama said something interesting. He said that the, those who drive us the craziest are our best teachers. And I think what you're talking about um, is really what I see in my practice, which is Sometimes parents don't agree. Most of the time, even if you're married, you have different parenting styles. So the idea of looking at your own triggers and your own approach to parenting can sort of sort that out a bit because, you know, our teenagers don't expect us to be perfectly consistent. I don't know many parents who are, but if at least we can be, like you said, aware and honest about this is how I parent, this is what I'm feeling, um, this is how I'm contributing to this relationship, I think that the teenage problem can lessen. That's what I've found. And that sort of struggle diminishes with that awareness of the parent. All right. You just used an interesting phrase, the teenage problem. What is that? Is there one problem that, that parents are coming to you more often than, than not with? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just like there are so many different individuals, teenagers or individuals, there are many different problems. I would say... Um, you know, power struggles would be a classic, you know, me, classic struggle that I see. Um, 
issues around you know listening to the parent trust i call it the trust mistrust cycle so the teenagers trying to forge a little bit of freedom we know that 99% of teenagers lie what does that mean it's not is it good is it bad it I, you know i always say i like reality because it always wins it is what it is it's not that we try to encourage lying or we don't teach our kids to be honest but in accepting that and not overreacting, we can then again forge the alliance and help them not to lie. So things like that. So, you know, a, a teenager wants a little more freedom, they lie, the parent has a huge reaction to that, then the teenager feels like they have to lie even more, and on and on it goes. Clearly things like, you know, substance use and, um, you know, uh, children, teenagers not doing their best. And then, of course, there are a lot of teenagers who do have frank, you know, traumas and, and, and larger sure. issues um, that aren't completely addressed by the parents' change. However, I've noticed that even in the most severe problems, when the parent is able to change his or her view of the child and his or her internal world, meaning his emotions, his projections, his triggers, then at least we can then clear the smoke, so to speak, and really get to the problem. It's not then kind of clouded in the parents' issues. So Yeah. Now, doesn't, does it make a difference the reason for the lying. I mean, I mean, a lie is not always just a lie. I mean, yeah. there there could be the motivation to deceive, or the motivation to get something, or mm-hmm. push a boundary. I mean, there, there's going to be certain kinds of lying that are more tolerable. I would imagine. Yes, that's true. I think that again, um, I always like to say. You know, I have my A baskets and my B baskets when I talk to parents with teenagers. You know, A baskets are with all behaviors, things that are will endanger their lives or endanger the lives of others, things that really create a rift in our relationship, things that are just, you know, going to be a problem for their life. So lies that are in the A basket clearly have a different response, whether it's a consequence or, you know, a serious conversation. But then there's the B basket, which is... I'm lying because I need a little more freedom. I'm lying because if I tell you the truth, you're going to get mad at me and I'm not going to be able to do what I want. And it was just one restaurant versus my friend's house, you know. So again, you know, if you're someone for whom lying has a very rigid and extreme response, you're going to jump into that interaction in a different way and actually cause the the teenager to go down a different path than if you're able to look at it and say, oh, I'm being deceived. This doesn't feel good. Hmm. How can I calm down and then engage with my teenager around the importance of telling the truth, around, you know, morality? But um, again, reactivity is is not usually a good formula for good communication and keeping the connection. And we know, again, through research and also just through clinical studies that the connection is the main thing that we want to maintain and keep because that is um, has the best prognosis for success for the teenager. It also is enjoyable to stay connected to your teenager. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's also the best way to have any influence over over them. So, Talking with Krista Santangelo, who is the author of A New Theory of Teenagers, Seven Transformational Strategies to Empower You and Your Teen. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we will keep talking to Krista. Hey, parents, introducing the Communicizer. Go from boring old man speak. Oh, you know, I'm here if you want to talk. To 100% off the chain. Text me whenever, yo. I love you, Dad. 
Communisizer is not available in stores because it doesn't exist. But that's okay. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Because kids in foster care don't need perfection. They need you. For more information on how you can adopt, go to AdoptUsKids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt Us Kids, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, talking with Krista Santangelo, who is the author of A New Theory of Teenagers, Seven Transformational Strategies to Empower You and Your Teen. We were just talking about lying, and that is certainly a, an issue that you said 99% of teenagers lie. That's such a, a black and white statistic. It's nice to hear something like that because I'm sure everybody has sa- said that. Of course, you hear all these these studies about how People are lying every 15 seconds or something like that. I don't know what it is, but adults are, are spending an awful lot of time lying too, right? You know, I don't have the statistic on adults, but just but being lot. one and knowing them, I'd imagine that it's pretty high too, yeah. Yeah, so what what are we sending to them? Because they're obviously, as we've known with our own kids from the time they're about eight months old, they're paying very close attention to whatever it is that we're doing. Yeah. And if you think that you're lying and getting away with it, you're not. Yeah, and another interesting statistic, it's something like, you know, 10% of what we transmit human to human is verbal and the rest right. is nonverbal, right. right? So, yeah, so I think, again, this goes to my main point, which is how we feel about ourselves, how we act, and what is motivating us is going to be picked up by our teenager and by our children. And so, in addition to helping our teenagers get help if they need it, which often they do, how do I really go deep and look at my own motivations, my own fears, my own buried wounds, so that I can unlock those and perhaps shed some light on what's going on between the two of us? Because our, our teenagers often mirror you know, our own pain and have to act it out if it remains unconscious in us. And I've seen that time and again in my practice. Well, and we are also mirroring the pain that we have left over from our own childhoods, right? Mm-hmm. Do we really need to go into deep analysis to be able to to be effective parents? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. I think, I wouldn't say we have to go into deep analysis, but what I would say is that if we find ourselves in intense power struggles, if we find that our teens have problems to which we are having strong reactions, or even if our teens are having problems to which we're not having strong reactions, it makes sense to look at ourselves. Sometimes it's just, it doesn't have to be a deep dive. Sometimes it's just, oh, I'm a person who, you know, has problems with chaos. Teenagers can tend to be, have chaos in their lives hormonally, also just behaviorally. You know, one moment they're thinking of going to the ball game, the next minute they're going to go hang out with their friends. So to parents who have challenges around tolerating ambiguity and chaos will have challenges with this developmental stage. So do they have to go into deep analysis? No. But if they want to be stressed out all the time that their kid's changing their mind or that their kid's saying one thing and doing another, um, you know, that's, that's what will happen. So it's sort of about how do I notice my reaction and is it really commensurate with the behavior of the teenager or is there something left over and it might help to take a look well how do you do that how do you begin to as an amateur who's not in analysis Mm -hmm. begin to assess 
here's a, an area of conflict. We keep having the same argument. Mm-hmm. It's not about re- re- what it's really about, mm-hmm. or it's really about what it's not yeah. about. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, how, do, how do you begin to analyze yourself mm-hmm. and then figure out what to do about that? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, so most parents who are having reactions to their teens, they're reactions that they're also having with colleagues, you know, husbands, wives, and friends. So our teenagers and our children, because we have obviously such a deep emotional investment, just bring these up to the surface more quickly and more intensely. So uh, oftentimes that when we have a feeling about something in reaction to our teen, it's something that has been a whisper for a while, or it's something that we've enge- you know encountered, and sometimes it's completely new. So what do we do? So first, it's just be aware of it. So for example, you know, I'll give an example that doesn't have to do with teenagers. You know, road rage, right? So some people, uh, some, someone cuts you off, you might have a reaction in the car, you might get upset, you might curse. Other people jump out of the car and start to sort of you know engage with the other person in a very intense, emotional, aggressive way. So again looking at your own reactions. Are they super intense? Are they super rigid? What are you resisting? I often ask the parents in my practice to just in the morning wake up, what am I resisting? What is happening in my life or with my teenager that's pushing up against something and I'm feeling like this cannot happen. This teenager, if this teenager says this thing one more time or does this thing one more time, this is just, I'm going to be pushed over my edge. These types of feelings often, again, sometimes it's that the the teenager needs to change and not do the behavior. That's absolutely true. But sometimes it's because we have an opportunity to expand and to grow and to find more joy inside of ourselves. Wow. So, uh, yeah, it's exactly, you should be dancing. Uh, But but so where does the process begin, though? I mean, it's still requires almost a professional touch to be able to have that that distance. I believe in the professional touch as a professional. Um, I believe, you know, I am a therapist, so I'm biased, but I do believe a good therapy can be very helpful to parents. I believe any process that invites reflection, relaxation, um, there's something that Dan Siegel talks about, which is a wonderful practice called, you know, reflective capacity, which is how do I when someone says something, bring my own best self to the, to the reaction? How do I keep what the other person is saying in mind? And how do I respond rather than react? So again, just even knowing that there's a difference between reacting and responding, just even thinking about that idea can help us to expand this capacity. Um, so again, anything that helps you relax, anything that helps you reflect, meditation I talk about in my book is a wonderful tool, um, visualizations, you know, kind of just going through our, your own inventory about your own triggers. If you're a parent, you've probably gotten upset at your kids, maybe once or twice, I don't know. I know I have with my daughter. And what happened there? What was it that pushed you over the edge? So, you know, we can do a lot of work on our own, and it usually helps to have a trusted and, you know, kind of wise guide, whoever that is. Yeah, there's a a colleague of mine, you may know, Ross Park, who uh, he and I wrote a book. He was my my inspiration for a lot of the work that I've done with fatherhood, and, and was asking him at one point about what makes it an expert and he said something about along the lines of it's about three seconds, and it was he was talking about the difference between reacting and responding. Mm-hmm. 
is just to be able to have a little bit of space to think about what you're doing instead of just the knee-jerk response. What do you think about that? I think it's exactly right. And what I often say to parents is that all of this is very simple, but it's not easy because um, there's a wonderful book, um, A General Theory of Love, by some of my colleagues at UCSF. And they, they talk about how our emotions are embedded in the limbic system, which is different than the sort of cognitive system, right? A lot of talk about the old brain, the reptilian brain. And I won't go you know, into that too much. But again, I think that we often want to solve problems in this kind of cognitive, intellectualized way. Like you said, it's a great idea. Let's pause for three seconds. However, it may take a lot of work to be able to get to that pause. And so I just invite parents to you know, do the work they need to do. Some parents don't need to do it, but, um, you know, there are definitely some easy, um, you know, uh, practices, and I I do have those in my book. Tell us about one of them. Yeah. So, um, well, one of the practices is, you know, uh, some kind of mindfulness or meditation. Most people have heard about the benefits of that, and, and I think in parenting the benefits are, monumental. So whether it's, you know, mindful walking, mindful breathing, um, you know, any kind of mindfulness practice, you know, and I have a few specified in the book, but you can choose any one that that feels right to you, whether it's, you know, noticing the breath, whether it's focusing on different parts of the body. The idea is just to have a moment to see your own thoughts and to understand that we you know, many people think that we are not our thoughts, and it helps to have a practice that um, that can identify that. I also have some guided visualizations in the book. Um, I use uh, subtle energy healing, like chakras and colors. You know, there's um, advice in the book about how different energy um, systems in our body function and react to our teenagers. So again, noticing, you know, my teen flip me the bird going out of the driveway in my car. <laughs> I didn't feel peaceful about that. And where where exactly in my body did I feel that? Was it in my throat? Was it in my chest? So again, turning inward and trying to heal ourselves in this journey. Krista Sant'Angelo is the author of A New Theory of Teenagers, Seven Transformational Strategies to Empower You and Your Teen. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. And thanks very much to Navy Federal Credit Union for supporting today's show. They've been proudly serving the Armed Forces Department of Defense veterans and their families for over 80 years. Federally insured by NCUA. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.